Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Gimme the Creeps. I'm Abby, and that's my co-host, Daniela. Hello. And welcome to part five of the Susan Cox Powell case. This is the last and final part to this series. And if you haven't heard parts one through four, I suggest you go back and listen to those. Or you might be a little lost. This one is going to be full of information and I'm going to be pulling up some articles to read from, uh, mostly towards the end though, so that should be fine. So with that being said, I'm just going to jump right back in to this devastating story. Uh, Last time we discussed how Josh was going about having his wife being missing and people are watching him closely and he just is acting like a victim the entire time, making everything about him and his boys who are just an extension of him, as we will see, since he seems to have a lot of narcissistic qualities about him. Mm -hmm. So the police are searching minds because of what Josh had stated in the past around friends and family, where a, a mine would be the best place to hide a body because they would never be able to find it. So as that investigation is continuing, they're not finding anything. They're losing hope a little bit. Until they realize that Jennifer gave them some information about Steve that would be of use and finding out that Steve has her journals. So now their goal is to uh, to get those journals from Steve so that they can find out anything they can. Because as we know, Susan documented everything along the way during her marriage and she made a paper trail at work. So they know that they're going to find something when they get those journals. So the plan starts with Operation Tsunami, where it's a secret operation by the police in Utah, where they go up to Washington. Because remember, at this point, Josh has moved out of his home in Utah and has moved in with Steve. So now Steve lives with his two sons and Alina, his daughter. And then, of course, Josh has Brayden and Charlie at the time. Mm -hmm. So what happens now is pretty wild because Susan's parents are also still living in Washington. They're from Puyallup. They get involved unknowingly in this operation, but Chuck mentions in many interviews that he sees what's going on as it as it uh, unravels, I should say. So he realizes, um, I'm the bait, and that's okay with me. So here we go. Okay. <clears throat> so while searches continued throughout Utah mines and even extending to Illy, Nevada, due to a search history on Josh's computer, the investigation took some action out in Washington as well. Chuck Cox was heavily, heavily involved in this. The... Uh, He planned on essentially getting a rise out of the Powell family in hopes that he'd say something incriminating, except he had no idea that that was the plan until he realized it was unfolding in front of him. So they pretty much just uh, arranged a honk and wave where Susan's posters were featured and how long she'd been missing, what she looks like. And people were paying attention. There were news media people there and they were also in on it as they watched everything unfold. So crazily enough, Steve saw right through it and yet it still worked. Mm -hmm. So we have Detective (laughs) Maxwell. I know it was, he's like, I know what you're trying to do. And then he still just incriminated himself. So it's (laughs) wild. (laughs) They're too smart for their own good with like every situation. I also saw on YouTube, if you guys want to check it out, the cold podcast still has a lot of um, exclusive videos where 
for instance, I shared one image uh, or a few images of when Josh was getting a haircut from Susan. That's a full video that's just posted on there. So y'all can read his body language and you can see Susan, you know, trying to cut his hair as he like wiggles around and acts like a child. Uh, and there's, there's plenty of home videos over there for y'all to go check out. And one of them was... Josh irritatedly driving around while recording his neighborhood, trying to suggest that the Cox family has put posters up only around his home and nowhere else. What the fuck? (laughs) And it's like, it was probably what they were trying to do, which is make him mad and insinuate that he knows what's going on and, you know, he knows where she is. And it worked. Uh, So he's in the video talking about like, look, no poster, no poster, no poster. Here, a poster, a poster, a poster, um, a ribbon. And he's like pointing out that it's only around where he lives. And it just, he sees right through it. And yet he still walks right into it. So. I'm a fucking idiot. I know. So as usual, it's woe is me from Josh Powell. So Josh doesn't show up first to this honk and wave. Uh, Steve does. Uh, Detective Maxwell and the team put together a honk and wave event at a Fred Meyer grocery store near the Powell home. It all went according to plan. Chuck didn't realize the whole plan. He was merely led in the right direction and says he knew what was going on when Steve pulled up. Mm-hmm. As the news crews recorded and people wielded signs and posters featuring Susan Powell and how long she'd been missing, Steve, irritated, walks up to Chuck. So dramatic. <laughs> He's the main character in his world, for real. Dude, <clears throat> seriously. I will say he's very good at talking. So the video is up. Uh, you guys can find it online where he's confronting Chuck and the whole time he's like trying to clear his son's name and he's it's almost rehearsed and he's just so calm and smug about everything. So if y'all want to go check that out, you definitely should. It's hilarious and annoying at the same time. So you see at this point, Josh had already gotten restraining orders against the Coxes. So pretty much it was staged and the department led the news net, let the networks in on this. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. And I'm going to pull up this article to see, see here of the event. And I am using the Deseret News once again, Operation Tsunami is remember what it's called and also at this time they had wiretapped their phones so josh and steve's phones are tapped and so is steve's landline so everything is is more undercover trying to find out anything they can about susan and her whereabouts i was assisted in the best place to put the honkin wave and i didn't understand exactly why cox said police gave me a kind of getting warmer getting colder approach as to where i should set up Cox and others stood outside a Fred Meyer grocery store near the Powell family uh, home holding banners with Susan Powell's picture and words saying, remember me. Steve Powell spotted them there and stopped to confront Cox. Then to see Steve pull up to the drive-thru and I went, ah, I get it, Cox recalled. So I'm the bait. That's fine with me. <laughs> the elder Powell was irate. He called to let his son know what was happening. So he was like, it was like a Karen situation. He was like, Josh, you got, he's got his hand on his hip, his sunglasses on, he's standing in the corner and calling Josh. And according to one affidavit, Josh Powell then made multiple phone calls of his own. He also solicited help from family members and a media consultant on how to look and sound more sympathetic when questioned about Susan Marie Powell's disappearance, a detective wrote. Mm-hmm. Police had anticipated media coverage of events surrounding tsunami, but took additional steps to ensure any interviews granted by the Powells would prove substantial. A draft 
of the wiretap warrant shows that West Valley police intended to provide inflammatory information about the case to a trusted member of the media. The final version of the affidavit filed with Utah's third district court does not include that line, but instead says the media would ask questions related to information obtained by police as a result of forensic testing without disclosing the contents of the evidence. And so you'll see like their questions are kind of leading Steve in the right direction. And even though he's very smart, he just walks right into it. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, giving a shit too much about yourself to not see the big picture. Absolutely. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. So it uh, it was on August 20th, 2011, uh, that a reporter and videographer attended the honkin' wave, and afterward, the station published a story on its website with the headline, Raw Videos, Josh Powell Interviews, Confrontation Between Cox Powell Families. Uh, and at one point, two, two younger family members that are little girls, they want to see Brayden and Charlie, who are in the van, because, of course, Josh had to bring them along to the drama mm-hmm. and try to gain sympathy from the public. Like, these are my sons. I'll protect them at all costs. And these two little girls that are related to the boys, they just want to see their cousins, and they're standing there, and Josh and Steve are, like, guarding the van and they're like, this is not the right time. You can't see them right now. And it's just very dramatic. So when asked to comment on the station's apparent collaboration with police, Tim Ermish, president and general manager of KSTU, said in a statement, in August of 2011, Fox 13 News sent a reporter to Washington State to interview Josh Powell and also cover a honking wave organized by Chuck Cox. We made the editorial decision to share the unedited video of both newsworthy events with our audience online. And uh, so this was all like put together and y'all can check out the rest of that on the Deseret website. And then Steve and Josh made a website of their own after this event with their theory about Susan leaving with another missing person in the area, Stephen T. Kosher. But before I jump to that, I'll go ahead and mention that in the recorded coverage of Steve, Steve talking to Chuck, he says, uh, let me see, where did I write about it? The Honkin' Way was facilitated as a uh, campaign of hatred and violence, as Josh would put it. Josh accused, yeah, so dramatic. Josh accused Susan's parents of stalking him and the boys, and he was being paranoid and granted a temporary restraining order. But then Chuck filed a restraining order to prevent them from being able to publish Susan's journals. Because they were definitely planning on doing that. Mm-hmm. They wanted uh, they wanted Steve to admit on camera that the journals held some evidence so that they could seize the journals from his possession. And it worked. Steve on camera called them out for doing this on purpose and starting an argument with Chuck. He was like, what other stores in Puyallup are you going to other than uh, ours, Chuck? And he kept saying like Chuck over and over, like mm-hmm. emphasizing how pissed off he was. And um, he said, we have a lot of info from her journals about your family and all and all the stuff that went on in your family. Like he mentions it on camera. So bingo. He claimed he has background info on the family that was confirmed in the journals. So now the authorities have a reason to take the journals and they get a search warrant for Steve's house. Congratulations, Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope you're rolling in your grave remembering that moment. Oh yeah, spoiler alert, he's dead now. So we're going to get to that. Whenever uh, he's pissed off about that, they have a warrant now. But before the search happens, they had put a website up talking about this Stephen Kosher person who went missing. Uh, he lived in Utah, so let me get into that. 
Josh and Steve painted this picture of Susan eloping with Stephen Kosher. People don't buy it. Two detectives were sent to Washington State after Jennifer told them how obsessed Steve was with Susan. He was singing like a canary about their secret love. And when authorities find out he is actually obsessed, they they plan to go to his house eventually. And then they find the mother load. But um, in 2011, Steve went on national TV and read passages from, Su- from Susan's journals. He claimed that she was in love with him. And by August 2011... They had run out of places to look, and so that's when Operation Tsunami ensues. And the wiretap on the phones, um, Josh, Steve, and Steve's landline, they went on the news from Illy, Nevada, where they uh, searched, where Josh's searches on the computer, they went there, yada, yada. Um, And however, they didn't hear a phone call from Josh uh, freaking out over over what was going on though. So they were still hoping to come across anything. Okay, now back to Stephen. So this is strange because Stephen Kosher went missing on December 12th, 2009, six days after Susan. There was a house surveillance that caught Stephen parking in a neighborhood and then walking away from the vehicle. And to this day, they have no idea where he is, where he went, what his plans were. What's weird is that he is from St. George, Utah, and lived there, worked there, etc. But he had driven to a cul-de-sac in Anthem in Henderson, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And he, he was a devout Mormon as well. So he has that in common with Susan. He had driven around for like a long time the week prior to him going missing. And even today, his whereabouts are unknown. So he was going around Utah and he would stop places for gas and then drive a bunch of miles. And they think it has to do with him trying to find a job because there's a lot more information on Steven. So y'all can go check that out. But he was having, it was during the recession. He was having issues finding a job where he had relocated. So they think it had something to do with his money troubles. Um, but nobody is exactly sure why he went missing or where he went or what happened. So they tried to tie him to Susan saying that they eloped and this and that, but people just didn't buy it. August 24th, 2011, the warrant was filed and the next day they searched Steve's house. Steve was called for a job four hours away so that they could search without him being home. However, Alina, John, Josh, and the boys are living there so they had to wait outside while the house was searched for nine hours. What? And um, Did Josh call his dad? Um, I don't, I'm not sure. I didn't read that. I'm sure he did and I'm sure Steve knew what was going to go on. But I think... Steve underestimated what would what would happen after they found what they found. He probably just thought he was going to be embarrassed and he was a little bit weird but and kooky, but he didn't think he was like an illegal, like doing illegal things, which that's very weird that he wouldn't think that because he clearly was, he had something wrong with him because he, he did some sick things. Yeah. So when they searched, they, uh, they were like, okay, cool. Here's the journals. Here's the uh, password protected computers, as always, because they're related and Josh and everybody has those stupid computers that are password protected. And they even asked Josh for the passwords, which later was revealed. Josh told Michael uh, on the phone, of course, I know the password. I just didn't want to tell them what the passwords were. So he pretended like he didn't know them so the the cops couldn't log into them right then and there. What an idiot. So then they found the disgusting collection of the photos of Susan, the videos, the menstrual products that he saved in sandwich bags, all of that stuff we talked about in episode one. This is when it all comes to light that he's a fucking weird pervert and it was all locked in a cabinet, clothes, her temple garments for her, you know, Mormon 
temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve had cut out Josh's face in their wedding photos. Like that's how deep it went. That like, is creepy. So creepy. <laughs> So creepy. And then, of course, 15 notebooks that belong to Steve with all of his personal thoughts uh, for them to read. And, of course, the binder of sheet music that he had made for Susan with creepy love songs, which are on a website for us to listen to forever. Oh, my God. So they realize, like, this is far deeper than even Jennifer probably knew And they're like, what the fuck? One entry in the notebook said that Josh hated Susan so much that he fantasized about her having an accident and being dead. So like, hello, what the fuck? And uh, let's not forget how he put porn on on for his kids. And a specific part was uh, a road trip he took with Jennifer Graves while she was still a child. And he put porn on for her and pretty much documented how sexy she was that whole trip. Oh my God. His daughter, his child daughter. I cannot. So gross. So um, the the biggest find though here was the videos and images that he captured of his neighbor's daughters. They were eight and 10 years old. He had taken pictures through his bedroom window, which faced their bathroom. And so he could see and record them while they were in there. He was definitely arrested. A fucking creep. And on so on September twenty second, two thousand eleven, prosecutors filed criminal charges of felony voyeurism and possessions of depictions of a minor. This also meant Charlie and Braden were taken from the home because it's Steve's home, and Josh's brother John answered the the door when the police came by to get the boys. Um, at one point, he had answered the door and he was in a diaper. And he, it was common for him to walk around naked, apparently. So, I don't know. Ooh. That's just... Yeah. So, the brother... They have the whole family, oh, they've got this... something going on. I don't know. What? That's not... <laughs> he was... I mean, <laughs> would you answer the door naked, though? Come oh, on. definitely not. You wouldn't answer the door naked. I could understand walking around, but I mean... If yeah, the kids are there and stuff... Yeah, what the I fuck? Can't. That is really weird, actually. Yes. You're answering the door I- that way, like... And he had a diaper, so I'm like, what's going on here? Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I'm not judging adults who wear diapers. I just don't know the background to that. I just know that that's what happened. So they pick up the boys, and um, Josh is very indifferent about that. And um, when the boys were picked up, they right away said things that you could tell they were brainwashed about. So, like, they were brainwashed to believe, like, the cops are bad, Mormons are bad. And so they're, kind of, they're like, kind of repeating that stuff, and everybody's – you know, listening and they're like, okay, that's something that they were definitely taught to say or think. And even still, Josh was a free man. They did not arrest him. He was simply left at the home while they took Brayden and Charlie away. And the police were worried about the chance of Josh being acquitted. So that's the main reason why they didn't want to arrest him and make a move. So they still sat there and waited, even though everything is adding up for them to be able to do that, go ahead and arrest him. But they just still didn't. It's crazy. Um, So, however, in a meeting with the Washington Department of Youth and Families, Josh was crying, saying he needs his sons to be protected from Judy and Chuck Cox. He was like, anybody but Judy and Chuck Cox. It's Susan's parents. They love the boys. There's no reason why the boys can't stay with their grandparents. But Josh just really couldn't stand the idea of it. And he downplayed his father's decisions and actions and was like, we didn't know he was a pedophile, basically. Like, we didn't, we, we're not involved in this stuff. He didn't call his dad a pedophile. He was just like, oh, you know, what he does on his spare time, 
we have no control over it. We don't know what's going on. And, uh, but he's a pedophile. So hello, you guys cannot live there. <laughs> Stupid. So Brayden and Charlie oh, were, fuck? yeah, he was just downplaying the whole thing. He was like, this is not even that bad. Like who knows what's going on, but it's not, it's my kids are more in more danger with Judy and, and Chuck than they would be here. It's so stupid. Charlie that and Brayden are suspicious. Like that's right. That's not like good. They, like they want possession of the boys. Why? That's creepy. Yeah. It's like as long as your kids are safe. I mean, put up a fight for them or whatever. But you can't be irrational about all this. Well, and they probably. I mean, they knew what happened to her. I'm sure. And an yeah, extent. exactly. You're exactly right. That's their main concern because apparently that's the only time Josh would be paying attention to his kids is if he saw someone else approach them and start to interact with them. Then he would kind of be like, hey, what's going on over here? Hey, Braden, why don't we uh, go do this instead? Yeah. It's always that with him. So you're absolutely right, especially if their grandparents gain the boy's trust and start you know, kind of asking them questions, he's definitely scared of what they're going to say mm-hmm. if if they've already said as much as, as they have. Right. Um, <clears throat> so Charlie and Brayden are dropped off with the Coxes, despite what Josh wants. And Charlie right away, as soon as he gets there, asks uh, if they're going to abuse them now. Like, are we going to are we going to be abused now that we're here? Fuck? That's so because shitty that they told them I that. know. Yeah, like, oh, those are your grandparents are abusive. We don't want you over there. Mm-hmm. But aside from the brainwashing, they loved their mom. And at one point, Brayden sees a picture of Susan in their home and is like, that's my mommy. She's a good mommy. It is very sad. So Josh and the Coxes went to court because he did not want the boys to live there. And he'd rather them go to a foster home than stay with them. Oh but God. luckily, right. I'm like, what the hell? But luckily the judge disagreed and um, he was only allowed supervised visits at a facility and the Coxes would keep custody of the boys for now. Declarations were filed from friends and family so that Josh could get his boys back. He was asking everybody he could to say what a good dad he was. And surprisingly, even his mom agreed to write a letter um, petitioning for him to get his kids back. So strange. What Eight letters. Fuck? Only eight. I mean, that should say a lot that it's only eight uh, letters were submitted for petition for him to get them back. So uh, around this time, Charlie drew a picture of the family going camping and the counselor asked, where's your mommy? In the trunk. Oh, my God. That's what he answered. Just straight up. He answered it. Uh, The boys said they often slept in the nude, sometimes with their dad. And uh, Mm -mm. the possibility of abuse was high, especially seeing how the boys would attack their meals uh, the kids didn't get very much to eat at home, and it really showed in their actions. They would they would just be so hungry. So before, I guess it was it was heard, or maybe they told that before they could eat, the adults ate first. So it was almost like a dogs getting the scraps. Isn't that so sad? That is extremely sad. So, and even in the interviews at the very beginning, that he's hungry. Like, a, you know, Josh apparently got a pizza or whatever on, on his way, trying to take as much time up as he could before he had to talk to police. But, um, the, but Charlie was saying how he was so hungry whenever she was trying to ask him about, you know, where, where are the crystals and this and that, uh, whenever, during that interview, he was hungry. And that, during a separate interview, he also said he was hungry. So the boys are technically always hungry because of how little they're fed. And it's just so sad. Right. That's neglect. Yeah. Horrible. 
So Josh was evaluated by a psychologist at this time to see if he was a fit parent. And James Manley was the psychologist put in charge of Josh, you uh, put in charge of seeing Josh's uh, mental state. And he right away said that Josh had narcissistic qualities and was incapable of seeing that he was a flawed person. Mm. <clears throat> and he looked at his sons as extensions of himself, just in the way he treated them, talked about them. It was just apparent that he didn't see them as two separate children that relied on their own separate developments. It was always like, oh, they're my kids. They're my boys. They're going to be doing what I want them to do. Yeah. He wasn't allowed to see the boys overnight until he lived somewhere else, not at Steve's. So he rented a three-bedroom house close to Charlie's school. His logic as a parent was flawed. He would bring them to his rock club that was for adults. It was like a gem collecting club where they would dig and use heavy instruments. And there was machinery around, but uh, he would still bring the kids. Nobody else brought their kids because they knew like this is not for kids to be at. Right. And at one point, someone recalled Braden crying in a corner for quite a while enough to get their attention like that Josh was not paying attention to the crying child while he worked and so finally one of the members suggested he go and check on him and the boys would get bored and run around and he wasn't paying attention until others noticed and would go pay attention to the boys and that's the only time he would go over there and be like hey what are y'all doing or whatever uh so it was just very weird and at that time that Brayden was crying he let the the member who told him to go check on him he was like he let him know uh, sometimes it's good to l- let them cry. Like, just let what them cry. The uh, sometimes you just have to let them cry or something along those lines. So it was just weird right away. It almost seemed like he had like a facade that he would use, but he really didn't care about his kids genuinely. So this is when they decided to let Josh see his sons at home because other parents complained and they didn't feel comfortable meeting up at a facility that Josh was also meeting up at with his kids. Mm-hmm. And so this is where they made the mistake of letting Josh have supervised visits in his own home. The investigation was finally able to see what was going on. And on one of the hard drives confiscated from a computer of Josh's, they found images of cartoons or drawn photos of adults with children doing adult things. I don't know the details, nor do I want to know the details, but the bottom line is they were on Josh's computer, and so the police in Utah had to get permission from a judge before they could show the evidence to the law enforcement in Washington. So this is the whole issue, that Washington and Utah are two separate departments, two separate uh, things. They're not completely involved with each other. They can't really work together the way they could if they were in the same state. So the judge said, just wait until the boys were going to be placed back into Josh's custody before showing this evidence to the courts. What the fuck? Right. So, however, they weren't aware that this was already in the works, that Josh was being evaluated and the boys were set to be put back into his custody once, you know, he had his own home and all that, which was already in play. So they didn't know that they could now use the evidence. Mm -hmm. It was just miscommunication. It was just bad timing. I don't know what it was, but it was bad. And at this point, Debbie Caldwell, remember the daycare provider back in Utah, called the police saying that the boys should not be around Josh. And they pretty much said there was nothing they could do unless they had a reason, like Josh was abusing them in front of the supervisor or whatever Mm -hmm. during visits. In December of 2011, the psychologist suggested Josh not be reunited immediately with his sons. He wanted someone specialized in narcissistic personality disorder to meet with Josh and do more um, therapy with Josh before he was um, a full-time parent again. He said more visits were good 
for them to keep them safe while being connected with their father at the same time. And I guess I can see where he's coming from with that, as long as they're supervised visits. Right. And in January 2012, a website called For the Kids, number four, the, and then kids with two Zs at the end, came up. And it was a hate page pretty much about the Coxes and the investigation, like, they're looking in the wrong places. The Coxes are abusive. They shouldn't have custody of my kids or of the kids because it was like always put up as an anonymous thing in this case. Mm-hmm. So Michael Powell was the one who created this site and he had published. Yeah, Michael was definitely in on it. So Michael Powell created this site. He published emails and CPS documents, etc. And Josh claimed that he had no idea that Michael did this, but how else would he get all of that info to put on the site, you know? Right. Then now is when the images are shown to the Washington police, barely now. This is concerning, and it showed that Josh found this content and behavior acceptable. Global approval um, of such acts is how they stated it is uh, what they felt Josh felt about those kinds of things. A meeting was set up with a therapist and Josh uh, was under psychosexual evaluation during this time where there were four, four different parts to the evaluation. They were going to meet with a therapist and do those first steps. But the final step was a test where instruments that measured arousal would be used on him through the blood flow. So you can only imagine where the where these uh, wires and stuff were going to be attached to oh um, as images were shown to Josh. He was definitely going to be in some hot water because that's that's something you cannot hide. You cannot hide your heartbeat or how where your blood is flowing, etc. So yeah, um, as images were shown to him, he was going to be measured for what he's being aroused by. So they they were going to definitely assess the risk of having him around children and all that. And there was no hiding it. Josh heard these plans and it, it seemed to make him realize that he was in too deep now and there wa- there was no avoiding what would be found out, which is that he is not fit to have the boys, um, bottom line. So brace yourselves. This is the part that nobody likes. Trigger warning now for child murder. Mm-hmm. Josh went to the bank and withdrew some money and transferred the rest of his money to Elena, his sister. He then went to his storage unit and picked up a few things, dropping them off at a recycling plant and mailing the key to the storage unit to his sister as well. He donated books and toys that he had already moved into his new house that were Braden and Charlie's, so they were now uh, never to be played with again. And on the morning of February 5th, 2012, Elena got some emails from Josh on how to manage his affairs. She then got a voicemail where Josh said, I'm calling to say goodbye. I'm not able to live without my sons and I'm not able to go on anymore. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. She freaked out, called 911 and said she was worried about Josh and she didn't know the address. So the dispatcher was like, is this the same Josh Powell that's in the news? And uh, she said yes and started crying. And she was like, everybody thinks he's a bad person. And so that's how they tracked him down. But she had made sure to put in her two cents about defending him. Of course. Meanwhile, the same morning, Elizabeth Griffin Hall is the supervised visit caseworker. And she's coming by Josh's for the supervised visit with Charlie and Brayden around noon. The boys ran up the driveway as she was catching up. Josh said, I have a surprise for you as he locked eyes with her and slammed and locked the door in her face. She thought it was a mistake and knocked and rang the bell. She pounded on the door and she panicked. She smelled gasoline and she heard one of the boys crying from inside the house. 
She called 911 from her car, and the male dispatcher was very dismissive of her panic. He was not grasping the gravity of the situation where there was a potentially, at this point, potentially dangerous man who was not allowed to be alone with his kids. And he had locked her out, and she kept emphasizing, I have to be inside with them. He locked me out on purpose. There's something wrong here. And um, the 911 call is online for all of you who have a please don't make me the listen. strength to no I yeah I'm not gonna ugh, I had to listen to it today and I was like this is horrible just to kind of get the so gist much. he's very just like interrogate like interrogating her the whole time about her background and like what's Josh's birthday like what can you just get someone over here there are two kids locked inside a house with a dangerous man and he's not supposed to have them like that's the bottom line mm-hmm. so. Then she didn't know the address at first and had to find it. So she like walks around and looks for the address and, and she asks like, can't you find me by like GPS? And he says, no. And I'm like, I thought they could, what the fuck is going on? He's just giving her a hard time. And I will go ahead and say that this dispatcher realizes what he's done wrong. And he now trains other dispatchers on how to handle situations like these. So at least he knows what he did wrong, but gosh, this is just so frustrating. Mm. So she finally gives him the address and she mentions that she smelled gasoline and he won't let her in and it's a supervised visit and he's like, you don't live there, right? So whose house is it? And it's just frustrating. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, just fucking get here. Yes, it is the absolute worst. And then he's like, so who's supervising you? And she's like, no, I'm supervising them, their visit. And I'm, and he just, oh, it goes in circles forever. That lady had so much patience. I literally would have been screaming. Me too. Me too. I would have hung up and called again, hoping to get a different dispatcher because no way. She emphasized that she is responsible for the supervised visit and he was hung up on that. So he kept asking her about her job. Where does she work? This and that. He's not understanding. They are in immediate danger. So he pretty much interrogated her and the time is ticking within minutes as she moves her car because she had smelled gasoline. The house goes up in flames and nobody comes. There was apparently a fire department like down the street and she can hear sirens, but no one's showing up. So she makes another call and suddenly it's enough of an emergency to send someone out. But they give her the runaround on this call as well. They give her a hard time on the phone asking like what happened and everything. And they claimed there was a truck there. Like they could see that there was a truck there, but there was no one there. And the house is just burning to the ground as she's frantically like screaming into the phone, like you need to get someone here. Mm-hmm. Well, once inside, they find Josh, Charlie, and Brayden in a back bedroom. There was a hatchet on the ground that he had used on the boys before he blew the house up. Charlie and Brayden were buried in the same casket with one headstone that featured Susan on it, and it said, United in Heaven. And Josh's family had the nerve to try to ask them to bury Josh with them under that headstone. Yeah, what the fuck? Um. Absolutely not. Are you fucking kidding me? Ugh. So now I'm going to get into the graphic detail of what might have happened while the 911 call was going on outside. I'm using heraldextra.com. The autopsies, Powell boys suffered chop injuries. Graham Washington, Josh Powell's boys, were coming for a visit and he had preparations to make. He boxed up their books and toys and brought them to charity. He carried heavy cans of gasoline inside his house. He thought about what to write in the final emails that he'd send out, etc. When the boys arrived, they ran inside to see him. He locked the door before the social worker could reach it. She could smell gas. She called for help. 
As authorities continued searching through the charred rubble of the home on Monday, they released new details about what they described as Powell's deliberation in killing himself and his children who had been removed from his care, a horrifying climax to a long, bizarre saga. They found the two five-gallon can, gas cans inside, and um, Pierce County Sheriff Detective Ed Troyer said this was definitely a deliberate planned-out event. Smoke inhalation was the primary cause of death for Josh Powell and his two young sons, which means they were still alive while all this was happening. Oh, my God. Um, even if they weren't conscious, they were alive. Uh, they could have been saved. That fucks me up every time. So... The Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office investigator Melissa Baker said Monday evening that uh, that was the primary cause, and but the boys had also suffered chop injuries that contributed to their deaths. Seven-year-old Charles was struck in his neck, and five-year-old Brayden had injuries on both his head and his neck. They found a hatchet that they believe was used on the boys, and... Um, it was right there with them, next to the bodies. The Utah police chief headed the investigation into Susan Powell's disappearance, and Buzz Nielsen of the West Valley Police Department flew to Washington State on Monday and vowed that this case will remain open. Detectives hope to interview the father of Josh Powell, Steve Powell, who remains in jail on child pornography and voyeurism charges. He identified Steve Powell as a person of interest in the disappearance, but then said no arrest was Im- imminent. He's not in our sights. <sighs> so... It goes on to describe that morning and everything, which we don't need to talk about again. And so, yeah, he the boys were were still breathing whenever the, the fire was going. And here's where the information about Michael Powell comes in. Josh Powell's now gone. Steve Powell's in prison at this point. And Michael Powell, another brother who did not live in this in Steve Powell's household. He lived somewhere else, I think Minneapolis at this time. Michael Powell had paid to have his car towed to a salvage yard two weeks after Susan went missing. He had hoped it was going to be destroyed, but it was taken two years later before it could be destroyed. So it was taken into custody by the police. They realized like he had a car out there and they went and got it. So backtracking a little bit, December 21st, 2009, Michael and Alina were driving back from Utah So this is after Susan had gone missing. They had car trouble in Baker City, Oregon, and she called the AAA and wanted it towed to Pendleton, 97 miles away from Baker City. That's where they dropped it off at the salvage yard. Friday, December 4th, so previous to that, his usual activity on his phone stopped for the next two days, like he had turned it off or something. And Mm -hmm. then the day that she disappeared, he called his voicemail, and then it went dark again until December 12th. And so when he and Elena were going to Utah to see Josh, so after she'd gone missing, they were going to see Josh. And then uh, on December 21st is when the whole car event happened. Authorities went to Minneapolis in October of 2011 to question him. He told them even if he knew what Josh did, he wouldn't tell them. Like, what the fuck? He said that. I'm like, that's incriminating. What the fuck? Yeah. So... He was getting a PhD at the time, and they mentioned how that would be put on hold for this is an obstruction of justice, and he's going to get in trouble if he doesn't say anything, but he still didn't. And during the wiretap times, they found that Michael warned Josh about the police listening and that they should start writing encrypted emails to each other. And that's what they did. Oh, my gosh. So that's why they couldn't hear, like, they didn't hear anything on the wiretap. And they think maybe either... Either Michael was just ahead of the game or it's because he was doing um, intelligence training at the time. He was ex-military and a bunch of stuff. He has a big background in trying to become 
um, a legislative person and a, a bunch of stuff about him, but he's irrelevant. So whatever. A month after Susan's disappearance, Josh removed Chuck from the trust that they had made and put his siblings down for his life insurance. They were the beneficiaries and 93% of it would go to Michael since he was good with money. And it's like, look who's fucking talking. He claimed Alina wasn't good with money and would squander it and needed more time to learn job skills. Mm-mm. Speak for yourself, Josh, you fucking idiot. Then two months after he was questioned, he went to a satellite company and wanted images taken, aerial footage of uh, the Pendleton, Oregon area in October of 2011 or later. He had specific dates that he needed the images um, from. And they only had images from August and before. And he asked them to let him know when they got images from October and after that. He wanted to see if his car was still there. But the cops had already had access to his car. And the satellite company called in cooperation with the police saying to Michael that they had the images that, but they're not really sure what he's looking for. So can he be more specific on what he needs in the images? And he went ahead and said that he wanted an image of the auto lot that was in that area. And he was willing to pay up to $2,000 to get that picture taken. Oh my God. Right. And so they were like, okay, or whatever. And, um, at that point he's still waiting on that. But at that point, I'm pretty sure the cops had already taken his car out of the lot. They had uh, showed, they had brought cadaver dogs to that lot and the the dogs made a beeline for Michael's Toyota Corolla oh, and geez. they hit on the trunk. When the dogs hit on the trunk, they sent the car to forensics in Utah to continue the investigation and check the car out in more detail and indicated, you know, the truck was indicated to have some kind of evidence in it by the dogs. So they assumed they were going to find something of Susan's. DNA in there or something, but when they checked, they they found hair, but it did not belong to Susan. Dang it. Yeah, that sucked. So, but they they were on to him because Michael's getting a little nervous here. Since Susan was de- wasn't declared uh, dead yet, Alina and Michael couldn't take over the life insurance yet. They also went to Steve's court hearings that occurred after the deaths of Josh and the boys. So it's like, do they not grieve or like what's going on here? They they still have Steve's back. I guess they're trying to save the the last remnants of their family there. Uh, Alina said that there's no proof that he took those photos. He just had them. And um, yeah, he was still guilty. So they, they put him in, in prison. But the fact that she still tried to have his back and she even created a website that and put together all this information saying that there was an abuse of authority and that Susan loved being stalked by him. She knew what was going on the whole time. Just horrible things like that. That is very disturbing. And you can see videos where she, there's an oxygen special on YouTube, as I mentioned before, and she just has no qualms. She's like, no, Susan knew exactly what was going on. And my dad is completely fine. She's 100% on her dad's side saying the window was open. So the little girls chose to be visible in their bathroom. What in the fuck? She literally said that. Can you fucking believe that? Oh my God. I hate people so much. Uh, so yeah. So Steve is in prison um, and he's also trying to sue for 20 million on wrongful death of his grandsons, which he's not completely wrong because I think at the same time, the Coxes were also like, someone's got to go down for this. This was neglectful on the, on the part of the courts, the caseworkers, anybody like right. this could have been prevented. So I guess, but whatever, he still doesn't deserve to be even related to those boys. On October 20th, 2012, 
Michael was flown to New York for some kind of life insurance meeting that he needed to go to where they asked him a lot of questions. Since he's on it for 93% of it, I, I guess they really needed to ask him in detail questions in person. So he's pretty much getting interviewed. And one of the questions was if he had a Facebook and he said no at first. And then he said, yeah, but uh, through the wiretap, they found that he had like a catfish Facebook named Molly Hunt where uh, he shared it with Josh. And what they would do was they would change the user and password comment, you know, pretty often, I'm guessing. And they would switch off checking it because they joined search groups for Susan on Facebook and they wanted to know what was going on. And uh, so they did it under this Molly Hunt account and they would join all of these groups and stuff just to find out what's going on with the investigation, if anybody knows anything. And there were chats about the investigation in Nevada. And that's really when they jumped on, on the day that the Nevada searches were announced. Okay, because in the beginning, they found out the searches from his laptop were for Illy, Nevada, motels, roads, trails, this and that. But they didn't tell anyone they were searching there until they were hoping this was another one of those Operation Tsunami things where they were trying to coax Josh out somehow, like freaking him out, saying, hey, we're also checking Nevada right now because we have reason to believe that she might be here. They were hoping Josh was going to call Michael that day and be like, did you hear they're fucking checking Nevada now? That means they saw my laptop. That means they know I was, you know, mm-hmm. potentially going to go there. But that didn't happen. Instead, they the, the boys just both logged into that Facebook account and, and Googled the the uh, Nevada searches, and then they changed the password. (laughs) Four months after Michael's disposition, where he was asked about the car, Michael Powell committed suicide. Mm -mm -mm. And uh, I'm going to bring up the Salt Lake City Tribune here to go into more detail with that. It's pretty disturbing stuff. One of Josh Powell's siblings apparently committed suicide Monday by jumping from a building in downtown Minneapolis. The Salt Lake Tribune confirmed that Michael C. Powell, 30, died after he jumped around 2.25 p.m. from a multi-story center village, a complex that consists of a seven-story parking structure and additional floors dedicated to a hotel and condos. Powell lived on the block. Four people apparently witnessed the fall, according to police. Powell landed on a sidewalk next to the building and died immediately. Mm. Insane. And then it goes into more detail on who he was and what he might have had um, been involved in with his family, with Susan and everything. So y'all can go check that out if you want to on the Salt Lake Tribune. I just don't want to take up too much time here. So now Michael is dead. Josh is dead. Steve is in prison. And Steve Powell then dies of a heart attack in a hospital in 2018. Mm-mm. So a few years after that. So now it's like, who the fuck knows anything besides maybe Alina? And she's not going to even agree to think that about her family. Of course. So let me pull up. Let's see here. Because I found out that Steve had taken a few days off uh, during the time Susan went missing from work. Oh, shit. And that was something I guess nobody thought to look into or they didn't hear about it until after. Because, of course, Josh was the main center of attention for being the main suspect Mm -hmm. for a while. So Stephen Powell dies at 68 a year after release from prison. He died in a hospital of a heart attack. And he's a key figure in a gruesome saga that started in 2009, blah, blah, blah. So this is in the Seattle Times. We can read about that. And so what happened was a co-worker went 
and told them, hey, I remember he went camping for a few days during that time. Do you want to talk to me about this? And they interviewed the person. A co-worker of Steve, and this is from the Seattle Times, a co-worker of Stephen Powell, father-in-law of Susan Powell, who had been missing since 2009, says he told her he was going camping in Utah with his son, Josh, at about the same time she disappeared. A co-worker of Stephen Powell says the father-in-law of Puyallup native Susan Powell planned to travel to Utah for a camping trip shortly before she disappeared in 2009. Lawyer Ann Bremner said that she has spoken to the co-worker in recent days and reviewed the statement that colleagues sent to authorities. In the woman's account, she says Stephen Powell talked about leaving around Thanksgiving 2009 for a camping trip in Utah with his son Josh Powell. The co-worker thought the camping trip was odd. She saw Powell a week or two later and he reported that the trip was cold but fun. Susan Powell was last seen on December 6th of that year. Josh said that he had taken a late night camping trip in Utah with his two boys the night that she disappeared. Nobody has ever been named a suspect in her disappearance. Josh Powell killed himself and the couple's two children. Bremner, Bremner who represents Susan Powell's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, said she herself has never really believed Stephen Powell was involved in Susan Powell's disappearance, but is now reassessing her perceptions of the case. Chuck has always thought that Steve was very involved, Bremner said. This just sort of confirmed that for him. An attorney for Stephen Powell did not immediately return a call seeking comment. The coworker does not want to be named, Bremner said. She said that she sent the information to authorities in Pierce County, asking them to forward the details to Utah investigators. The AP was able to review her email correspondence that verify and verify that she did work with Stephen Powell and is among the Department of Corrections workers copied on the work emails with Powell. Stephen Powell called in sick from his job on December 8th and 9th of that year. What? He did, he did appear to remain engaged at work, continuing to send emails um, to colleagues around that time period, according to the documents that came, um, obtained by the AP. Authorities have said they want to talk with Stephen Powell to see what he might know. He's currently in jail on charges of voyeurism. Utah investigators described in documents released last week that Stephen Powell had an apparent obsession with his daughter-in-law. So we already know that stuff and all the images that he found and everything. So that is wild that he called in sick that day. Yeah, what the... Nope, nope. So Josh called him and was like, I need you to fucking... Right. Help Something. Me. Yes, especially when he, um, I am thinking, he took three extra hours to get back home after they were able to reach him. So during that time, he was probably like, oh, God, I got to at least get rid of some of this stuff that's in here. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of, I have extra um, information on what was found in the vehicle. So now we're going to jump back to the day that they had the search warrant to keep the minivan and I have to make a, a correction or two. Um, I had said that the bag was just in the back passenger side, but it was actually in a hidden compartment of the floorboard behind the driver's seat. Interesting. Which I'm sure a lot of vehicles have those kinds of storage. So it's not like he like rigged up the vehicle to hide anything, but right. he definitely was planning on getting rid of that white bag before the cops searched him for sure. Um, so let me see here. I have experiments that uh, the cold podcast host did to figure out what the hell that melted down equipment is. Detective Ellis Maxwell and his partner Gavin Cook first went through Powell's minivan with his consent on the night of December 7, 2009. Powell said he had returned from an overnight trip to Toole County's Western Desert hours earlier with his sons, Charlie and Brayden. Um, let me continue down. The mystery item. So 
One of the garbage sacks appeared to have come from the kitchen of the Powell home. It contained food refuse from a lunch that Powell had prepared for his wife and neighbor, Giovanna. So it had like the pancakes and stuff, the trash. They should have, uh, and they did, they tested because there was a theory. It was a theory that he poisoned or sedated Susan, whether if it was with prescription medication or whatever, Maxwell said. We felt that he'd likely put something in her food because he'd cooked her some food that Sunday. However, an analysis by Utah's state crime labs failed to identify any suspicious substances among the uneaten portions. More curious was the second garbage sack, which Maxwell recovered from the floorboard compartment. It contained several pieces of burnt drywall, which appeared to have been stacked at um, the time they were damaged, as well as a small metal object that had been partially melted. During a subsequent search of the Powell home, detectives also located a scorched spot on the concrete floor of the garage. He did have an acetylene torch in the garage, so it's very likely that he used that torch to destroy whatever the item was. At the time, detectives supposed the item could have been a cell phone, a GPS receiver, or a hard drive. They sent it to an FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia for metallurgical analysis. The FBI determined that the item was mostly steel with calcium and strontium also present. Three short, partially melted copper wire fragments uh, located alongside the metal object appeared to be the same style and size as those used in a typical three-prong AC power cord. So this is what you can see this on YouTube on KSL cold experiment rolls out possible origins of mysterious object. Um, Dave Colley applied oxyacetylene torch to a late 2000s era cell phone. He melted several things and then ended up seeing they don't look anything like this. So then he figured out that it could be a drill. Oh. He traced everything back. The video is on YouTube. I suggest everybody go watch it. He realized that Josh had, whenever he filed for bankruptcy, remember he would go and spend a bunch of money so that it, he basically got all that stuff for free. Mm-hmm. And he would go and run up credit cards that were Home Depot credit cards and just buy a bunch of equipment. And Kali noticed he bought a huge tool set that came with a few different kinds of drills and stuff like that. And one of the drills was missing from that tool set. Um, and in the images that they took of the living room, the drill is sitting on the entertainment center. Stop it. Yes, dude. And um, there's also pictures of the garage where they should have just searched the whole garage because there's a they see the torches, they see the tanks, but there's a bag of tools sitting on the uh, on one of the shelves in the garage. And it's like, okay, he could have taken that out of the bat, you know, out of the van and without going too far and just set it there, you know, so that, you know, it's tools. It's a garage. They're not going to think anything suspicious to where if the tools were in the van, they would be like, what the fuck? Yeah. So that is definitely something interesting. He put together that uh, when melted down, the drill would end up having the copper wires come apart as well as like the motor and stuff like that. And there's metal um, part of there's a metal in the drill. So it's part of the drill. So as it melts down, it's not going to completely disintegrate the metal. So he was onto something with that. Um, he could have whacked her over the head with it, you know, or something like that, and then melted it down because it's going to have hair on it or blood or whatever. Yeah. So that was something to behold whenever I was like, oh, shit, he's onto something with that. Mm. That is insane. Oh, Lord. Um, well, I'm trying to think of what else. Let me see here. 
Um, of course, like I had mentioned, the Coxes did seek some kind of something be done with what happened to their two grandsons. And it turns out that they were uh, rewarded some money for everything that happened, um, $100 million. <clears throat> Judge slashes $100 million jury verdict awarded to Susan Cox Powell's parents. So they reduced it down to $32.8 million. Or it could be retried. So this is in this was updated uh, in 2020. So Tacoma, Washington, a judge here on Tuesday slashed by two thirds a nearly $100 million jury verdict handed down to the parents of missing Utah woman Susan Cox Powell at the end of July over the 2012 deaths of the Powell's two children at the hands of their father. Judy and Chuck Cox had sued the state of Washington's Department of Social and Health Services in 2013 following the February 5th, 2012 murder-suicide involving their son-in-law, Josh, and their grandchildren. The civil suit accused the department social workers of negligence in their handling of the Powell children who died during a court-authorized supervised visitation at the home of Josh Powell. During a weeks-long trial earlier this year, which also endured a four-month delay due to the shutdown of the court over coronavirus concerns, witnesses testified in detail about the wounds each child had suffered at the hands of their father, Josh. And witnesses of the trial testified the children were conscious and suffering for roughly 10 to 20 minutes before they actually died as a result of smoke inhalation. The jury ruled unanimously at the conclusion of the trial that the state agency had acted negligently. Their verdict levied a $98.5 million penalty against the state. Weeks later, attorneys for the state filed a, mo a motion requesting a new trial or a reduction in the damages. In a hearing on that request, Roombog said it was clear to him that the graphic nature of the killings had played into the jury's decision. Mm -mm. Wow. These were extreme and inflammatory facts that related to the killings of these boys, he said. They're bound, uh, Rombach said, they're bound to a bister passion in the hearts and minds of any rational person. Rombach stressed the jurors were likely not even consciously aware of their own passion in setting such a high dollar figure for damages. It's not the size of the verdict alone, most certainly. This is an indicator, Rombach said. It's whether the size of the verdict in light of the evidence produced shocks the conscience of the court, and in this case it does. So as a result, Rombach cut the jury's award to $32.8 million, or he said the parties could retry the case. So that's kind of uncool. I mean, you can't replace the lives of their ch their grandchildren. Right. So it was a, a blow to the Coxes who have said the high dollar damages awarded by the jury would serve as an important motivation for the state of Washington to reform its child welfare practices. And that's a good point. Um, if they think that's a heavy blow, you know, money wise. Okay, well, now you know to change the way this goes. Yeah. The state continues to ignore their failures despite overwhelming evidence, Chuck Cox said following the announcement of the judge's decision. Judge Rumbog chose to essentially ignore all of the evidence, insult and dismiss the jury's diligent work, and impose his own biased arbitrary judgment. During the trial, witnesses of the Coxes accused the Department of Social and Health Services and its social workers of showing reunification bias by attempting to place Charlie and Braden Powell back with their father in spite of Josh Powell's status as the sole suspect in the, in the suspected killing of his wife. So, yeah, it's, it's a mess with that. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, so they didn't get as much as they probably should have and, and in terms of money, you know, but... This just all could have been prevented is the bottom line there. Yeah. In July of 2020, verdict 
the verdict is state negligent in deaths of Susan Cox Powell's sons. So a jury ruled Friday in this case afternoon that the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services was negligent in the deaths um, and Judith and Charles Cox were awarded $57 million per child, but that was reduced by $8.4 million. So it stays that way. I'm not sure if they retried it or anything like that, but um, yeah. Mm-mm. That is so fucking sad. Mm-mm. Yeah, for sure. And of course, the caseworker is just distraught in every interview. Uh, she did do a few interviews where they asked, you know, what? how do you feel about this whole thing? Like, what do you think? And she's just like... I was really just a step behind them. I can't believe that this happened. And she probably feels at fault, but she shouldn't because, I mean, she didn't know this was all going to end up like this. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? About which part? About the caseworker being blamed probably for the I don't, whole thing. I don't think she should be to one to blame like it was their dad that fucked everything up Mm -hmm. like she was doing everything she was supposed to do she literally was one step Mm -hmm. away like how she said Mm -hmm. like she literally there was nothing she could have done except move like two seconds faster and then what would have happened her arm would have been stuck in the door and he would have shoved her out anyways Right. You're absolutely right. He had already put his plan into action um, and there was no going back, whether it was done like this or, you know, this was the only time he had a, a, a hold of the kids, I guess. So that's the main problem here is that they they should have never had him meet for unsupervised visits in his home. Right. It should have always been at a facility mm-hmm. um, just to prevent that from happening. Right. But um, man, mm mm. And so, yeah, and Susan is still, her whereabouts are still unknown. There are still numbers that you can call if anyone knows anything about where she could be or if they've seen her or know anything about the case at all that could help find her. Um, They're still, they're still have, they still have their ears open for that kind of stuff. But at this point, I'm not sure. I don't see if it's still open or not, um, the case. I think it's closed at this point. As of November 14th, 2019, she is declared legally dead by the state of Utah. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. But that's, um, of course, it was probably pushed along by Josh Powell's family because they're the ones listed for the life insurance thing. That is so fucked up. It's all messed up. And so I think there's still there still might be ongoing battles between the Cox and the Powell family over all, I mean it was her money too. It was she worked that whole time. It's her life insurance. It's not even Josh did not even contribute at all. Mm-hmm. So the beneficiary stuff is just pointless at this point. Um, right. So yeah, that was the Susan Cox Powell case uh, as well as the murder suicide of Josh Powell and his two boys. Brayden and Charlie. So mm. sad. Super sad. Mm-hmm. It's just an open wound and there's no there's nowhere to go from here because at this point all of the potential witnesses and possibly suspects are all dead and gone. So yep. very, very bizarre, weird, dark situation. I agree. I definitely agree. Mm -mm. 
Anything else? I don't know if I missed anything. There are constantly still updates because, as I said, Dave Colley of the Cold Podcast is still looking into what police might have missed, just like how he was able to see where the minivan went to like several dumpsters. He was able to potentially figure out what the hell was melted down by that torch. And so there's always photos going up, always home videos going up of uh, Josh and everything. So you guys can head over to YouTube and check those out. There was something that you said that I had not heard. Um, I can't remember what it was now. Is it about Susan or Steven? Um, I think it was about Steve. Steve Kosher. I can't remember. Um, I His will situation say, is weird. I'm going to be freaked out if this is another one of those where we talk about it and then something happens. <gasps> That's going to freak me out too. That's weird because we did that with the Kendrick Johnson and then the Duggars. Uh, the Duggars and they just – those episodes blew up because right at that time something got uncovered uh, and oh god we can tell the future well I'm hoping that if they reopen this case they better fucking do something because I want to know where Susan is I need to know at this point where Susan is I cannot stand not knowing but at the same time uh, I've been also looking into the Chris Watts case again Mm -hmm. and it bothers me knowing it's so horrible what he did. You know what I mean? But at least we know. Oh, there's a new special, speaking of Chris Watts, mm. um, that's supposed to come out about the people that are the women that have been writing to him. Fuck those women. Oh, my there God. There is literally a – she was a psychologist in a prison, and she's like mm-hmm. fangirl over him, and she doesn't think that he did it. She was like <gasps> that it was weird that like the case just – stuck with her and she thought it was so weird because he automatically Mm -hmm. agreed to the plea agreement and it's like yeah because he confessed and he's fucking guilty what are you talking about Mm -hmm. she was like nobody does that nobody just automatically agrees to the uh, plea agreement and I'm like what you're like I can't even I can't even but Mm -mm. um, yeah she doesn't think that he did it and she uh, apparently also there's like a tie with like fucking Charles Manson. Like this lady's mother also was like in love with Charles Manson and she like tried to meet him in prison, but on the way to do this or some shit or on the way to join his cult, uh, Mm -hmm. she met some man that looked almost exactly like him. And that is who this that's who became the dad of the lady that is obsessed with Chris Watts. What the hell? Yeah, it was really weird. That's strange. Yeah, so that is Chris Watts. I don't, I, and they are, I don't know if they're like a thing or she's just obsessed with him and he's just accepting any person that doesn't think that he's guilty. I don't know. But um, yeah. she, there was something oh uh it was basically like she was trying to be like fucking harley quinn especially because harley was uh, a psychologist before or you know a scientist yeah so uh i thought that was funny but yeah i was like bitch relax oh my gosh uh yeah i've been there was a dr phil special as usual i'm over there watching dr phil Mm. without 
but yeah, I was watching Shanann's parents and what they said about the whole thing, and it's just so heartbreaking. But at least we fucking know, you know? Yeah. Um, which he wasn't obviously he wasn't great. Like he was gonna get caught. He there was surveillance, there was the fact that he told his coworkers, like, hey, don't worry about going out to that oil uh drum out there i'll take care of it or whatever and yeah so it was just bound to to come to light but it's just man knowing the details of of what he did is just it's just as disturbing as i guess not knowing where susan is Mm -hmm. you know i don't know Mm -mm. maybe one day they'll find her remains yeah there's a lot of theories out there that um Josh called Michael, and that's why Mike, when Michael checked that voicemail, he probably met him wherever and then turned his phone off again for however many days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. he did dispose of her. I think it was Steve, Michael. Steve and Michael definitely did the disposing of the body. And, uh, and that's why Josh was able to just go back home with his sons without there being enough to put him in prison i agree Ugh, lord Mm-mm. but yeah so that's that and i am eager to hear what everyone thinks about this case there's a lot more to it you guys can go ahead to the cold podcast to hear everything if you want to hear all of this um in more detail as well as with the voice recordings and the the journal readings and stuff but that's the gist of that. And if anyone knows anything about Susan Powell from Utah, you should definitely get with the authorities and let them know what you know because there's there's something. There's gonna be something that comes out of out of it. Yeah, there has to. Um, but um, in the meantime, yeah, that's that's all we know. And I'm wondering if Dave Colley is gonna uncover more if he was able to figure out the whole Home Depot toolbox situation and next month is all yours so i have no idea what you unless you did tell me and i just forgot but you're gonna be covering something yep i did probably forget it's okay because it'll be exciting yay uh so yeah next month is daniela's month so next week we're gonna be hitting off her her series and and also let us know what you think about this because i know we're used to the um Every other week is is our turn or whatever, but maybe we can do more of these, more of these uh, month-long things, just so that we can put more detail in Right. for these in-depth cases where there's a lot to talk about. There's a, ugh, this had a lot. It's very, oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, agree. head over to our Instagram and give us a follow at Give Me The Creeps, G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps, and on Twitter as well, send us a DM with even suggestions of what cases you want to co- want us to oh, cover yes. now that we're yeah now that we've covered our our main ones that we wanted to we are willing to take suggestions there are so many cases that we've never heard of and we are down to take recommendations from our audience so mm-hmm. once again thank you guys for your support and thank you for listening and uh, we're going to catch you next time so did we give you the creeps